Hello and welcome back, Curious to Serious listeners. This is your co-host, Gabby. In this episode, I'm excited to share my conversation with Ryan Rich, also known as Ganico, the founder of Root Healing, which is one of the largest providers of iboga retreats in Europe. In this episode, we cover Ryan's work at Root Healing, and we look at the two types of retreats that are offered, including psycho-spiritual and detox retreats, all while diving into the differences between iboga and ibogaine. He talks about BWT tradition as the core of the iboga retreats and how aligning traditional values with reciprocity and equitable access makes root healing unique from other retreat options. We also discuss Ryan's motivation for starting root healing and how his education in business was instrumental in getting things going. Additionally, Ryan offers some advice and assistance in finding connections within the plant medicine community for those interested in this path. Along the way, Ryan talks about some of the challenges he's faced and advises others to trust in themselves while following their own path within this space. Finally, we round out the discussion with a reflection on the future of psychedelics and the importance of allowing traditional groups to regulate the harvesting and purchasing of sacred plant medicines. Be sure to check out the show notes for ways to connect with Ryan, as well as all of the links that he was so kind to share with us that looks at research on iboga, ibogaine, all of the alkaloids, and all of the uses and amazing and powerful healing effects of these beautiful plant medicines. Additionally, before we get started, we want to take a moment to thank our sponsor. This podcast wouldn't be here without MAPS whose support has allowed us to keep the online Psychedelic Grad community platform free for all of our members and allows us to publish these insightful conversations for everyone to enjoy. We also have a new opportunity for our listeners to support Psychedelic Grad. If you visit the links in the show notes, you will find a link to our Buy Us a Coffee page where you can donate to Psychedelic Grad and help keep the dream alive so we can continue to provide resources and education to our growing community. Finally, thank you to our listeners for joining me in this illuminating conversation with Ryan Ganico Rich. I hope you're as inspired by it as I am. So welcome, Ryan Ganico Rich, and thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, thanks for having me, Gabby. I'm super excited to have you on our podcast and share the work that you do with our listeners. It's something that's very unique and it's very um, different to anything that we really had featured on any of our previous episodes. So I'm excited to present something new and exciting to our listeners. So let's just go ahead and jump on into it. Um, Let's get started with the work that you do with Root Healing. So you are the co-founder of Root Healing. Can you talk to our listeners about what Root Healing is and what you do? Sure. So uh, Root Healing is a traditional Buiti Aboga retreat center. Um, It's based out of Portugal. And what I do there is I lead kind of the psycho-spiritual and detox part of the retreats, which are the two offerings that we have. Okay, perfect. I have a bunch of little questions in here. So first, let's talk a minute about um, iboga. (laughs) So what exactly is iboga? What are the effects of it and how do people use it? Like what can it be used for? Iboga is hard to put into words, but I'll do my best. Um, It's the godfather of all plant medicines. And when I'm speaking uh, from my perspective, it's the Bwiti perspective. Um, so yeah, Bog is the godfather of all plant, uh, plant medicines, according to Bwiti. 
And it's, uh, it is, it's used by the Bwiti for three different things, which is, um, mental healing, physical healing, and spiritual discovery. Uh, but more, more famously, it's used for initiations, which is basically just a way to kind of introduce people into adulthood in the tribe and connect them to their community. Uh, it's also a way to kind of fix problems within the community as well. Um, but the way we use it is kind of as a healing tool for our guests and clients. So um, the reason we work, so a lot of people may be more familiar with ibogaine, which is like the isolated alkaloid of a boga. And it's actually just one of many alkaloids. There's like 34 uh, plus alkaloids known. And uh, we choose to work with a boga because it's the traditional way of working with the medicine, first and foremost. And also we think it's a perfect plant. Like we already think that it's perfect as it is. And so with all of those alkaloids, actually, it's, it's safer and better even because ibogaine itself um, has some cardio effects and things like that. So one of the other reasons we work with it also is it's much safer than just pure ibogaine because the alkaloids within the, within the plant also work synergistically. Um, so they kind of support each other. So basically, you don't need as much ibogaine to achieve the same results because of the other ones like abogamine and and such. Um, but on a spiritual level, a boga is remarkable. Um, it's like, it's always surprising to me. Like at every single retreat, I'm always amazed by what happens uh, because it knows exactly what people need. So uh, what it does is it goes in there and it's trying to bring you back to ground zero. So it's trying to bring you back to your true original self. And, uh, in our, in our retreats and stuff like that, people will show up with all sorts of blocks and patterns that they want to get rid of. And then by the end of the retreat, Aboga has completely cleared that away and given them a fresh start. Um, so that's the reason we also do two uh, ceremonies here at Root Healing in our retreats, because the first ceremony, like, is they're completely different almost. Like the first ceremony is uh, mental and physical detox usually. So it's kind of doing what, like what I just said, like clearing everything out that um, has been holding people back from being them true selves, things they've picked up from culture, society, family, all sorts of stuff. Um, and then once it's cleared all of that out, it, well, first it actually starts with the physical and then it moves on to that. Um, so physically, it's kind of going through your blood and your body to try to remove what doesn't belong. And that can feel a little uncomfortable, actually. Um, and it might even include like vomiting and purging. But uh, we love it when we see somebody puking, even though we have to clean the buckets, because we know that it's getting out a lot of good stuff. Um, and actually, sometimes it's, it's crazy, like they'll even be vomiting, but nothing comes out. And we know that that's like emotional stuff that they've been storing kind of throughout their lives. Um, so basically that's why, so we have two ceremonies. The first one's to kind of help them clear out. And then the second one's to go on a deeper spiritual level. So, uh, like I said, Aboga works on those three things, physical and mental healing and spiritual discovery. So once they're past that point of kind of detoxing and healing, they can then work on the spiritual side. And that's where we, it sounds crazy, but we connect them to their soul and their true selves. And they're actually able to have a direct conversation with themselves. 
That was a great explanation. And I'm so glad that you covered those differences between Iboga and Ibogaine because that was a question that I had, but you hit on it. So that's perfect. Oh, I can um, do more. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I have another question in relation to the, um, you, you offer two types of retreats, the psycho, spiritual, and the detox retreats. Can you talk about what makes them similar and different to each other and maybe why someone might choose one over the other? Oh yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I mean, they're, they're actually totally different. Um, so like the psycho spiritual retreat is what most people use. Um, and that's geared towards anybody. Basically. Uh, the only requirement is that you want to heal. Uh, one thing we don't do at root healing is, uh, kind of like, I hate to say that you use it in this way, but like psychedelic tourism or plant medicine tourism, where people come to kind of, just try out the different things because they've already done all the other ones. Um, that's not what we're here to do. And actually we'll turn people away for that reason um, in our screening process, but we want to focus on people that want to heal. So anybody that wants to heal that isn't addicted to drugs and alcohol and uh, does, ha- meets our medical requirements um, will be accepted into the psycho spiritual program. But if you're addicted to drugs and alcohol, it's a whole nother ballgame. Uh, Aboga is amazing at healing addictions. So it can literally block the opiate receptors and make sure that the person has zero withdrawals, assuming they're addicted to heroin. Um, and, and by the end of the three day, two to three days, once they're through their withdrawal window, they wake up like surprised, you know, completely like amazed that it's gone and they made it without any uh, symptoms. And so, so that part's pretty remarkable and that's what starts the program. So basically like, I mean, it's different obviously for people who are addicted to alcohol and, you know, other drugs, but it still kind of follows the same process. If I'm trying to like sum it up, uh, basically it's longer, it's two weeks to a month. They show up and we detox them off the drugs and alcohol first. So that's like a whole two to three day treatment. And then we uh, like put them into the general population and with the rest of the group. And uh, they do like the psycho spiritual retreats and they'll, they'll join the ceremonies for the psycho spiritual retreats. And sometimes if the groups are too large, they'll do, you know, we'll have separate ceremonies for both groups. But, uh, but generally that's how it's been going. Uh, and sorry for both of those, we have an extensive integration program. Um, but for the for the you know people struggling with addictions and that come for detox, it's like a you know we're talking very regularly. We're staying in touch with them because um, one of the things we can talk about too is is Aboga's, uh, how it works on neuroplasticity, and that's actually one of the best things for both people. But basically, like I said, once it's removed all those habits and patterns that that don't belong, that aren't the genuine you you're kind of left with a clean slate and a boga will stay with you for up to six months, like noticeable effects. And it will help you with neuroplasticity to set new habits and like really, really repattern your life into a way that's healthy. So that's why we take integration so seriously, because we want to make sure that people are making the right choices right when they get home, because you could actually rewire your brain the wrong way too. You know, if they're not supported And they don't have us, you know, kind of reminding them uh, about what we learned at the retreat and everything they came, uh, they got out of it, then, you know, it could also be less good. But I mean, they'll still be better off than when they came. But 
yeah, integration is just such an important thing. And anybody looking for any plant medicine should make sure that there's some sort of integration involved. Awesome. I'm so glad you hit on the importance of integration, um, especially because I think sometimes there's this notion with plant medicine or other types of psychedelic use for either psycho-spiritual treatment or other types of treatment. Um, there's this notion that like it, the experience kind of takes care of itself, like the neuroplasticity just inherent in a way. Um, and it's <laughs> so important to hit on that, the importance of integration. And I know in the United States, we have like ketamine clinics and they're all very different looking. And some of them offer integration before and after. Um, some of them do not offer any integration. And uh, this kind of piecemeal practice of even just ketamine therapy in that way, like it sometimes ignores that importance of integration. And like you said, without that, you know, that neuroplasticity doesn't always necessarily one, it might not necessarily lead to the best results in terms of like the, you know, the individual achieving as much as they really can. Um, and sometimes it can be a bit counterproductive too. So I'm so glad you hit on that. Good. Yeah. 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 It's important. Awesome. You hit on a lot of stuff that I had there. So that's awesome. I want to take a minute and talk about some of the things that really make root healing unique in, in at least mm -hmm. from my perspective and you bring up integration, right? But there's all these other parts of these retreats that are part of it too. There's things like you provide healthy meals, you provide counseling, um, there's day trips involved. There's all these other little pieces involved with that, that are beyond just the ceremony. So why does root healing incorporate these other pieces and why is it so important to have them be a part of the, the whole retreat process? Yeah, for sure. Um, well, we, we follow like a certain schedule because we just we know how it works and uh, we kind of know what they need. And with, with the two ceremonies in between, we have like an integration day trip to kind of get them out of the house and get some fresh air and stuff. Um, but the two days like so basically it goes they show up and then we let them settle in. And then once they're once they're settled in, that's why they'll come actually the day before at the actual ceremony so that they're able to like settle in, get a good night's sleep and then wake up and kind of start with the counseling and preparation for the ceremony with us. Um, and then that evening is usually, well, that evening every time is when we have ceremony. And then the following day is what we call a processing day. And that's actually the most important part of the retreat actually and it seems so simple because it's after the ceremony. So the, the Bwiti music is stopped and, and they go back to their rooms and, and they're kind of alone with themselves in their rooms. Uh, and then we're constantly checking on them um, and counseling them and stuff. But the reason this is so important is because a boga, it's kind of like a bomb went off on their body <laughs> and all the stuff that has been stored and like, you know, physically stored and emotions and all of that stuff kind of comes to the surface. And so it's kind of a period to kind of allow those things that you've never, they've never felt allowed themselves to feel to come out and also to gain insights about their life. That's when a lot of like the realizations and epiphanies about their life will come up as well. So that, so that we have two of those after each ceremony, we have a processing day and that's probably the most important part of the retreat if you were to ask me. And then we also have the integration day trips just to kind of give them a chance outside of that to get outside and get a break from 
kind of, you know, where they did all the hard work, you know, taking them to the beach or into Sintra, which is a magical town in itself. Um, but really what kind of sets us uh, apart is our focus on both the tradition and also the medical side of things. Um, so originally I was like very much more interested in science and that, that whole approach to this work, um, and, and psychedelic work, not necessarily a boga, but, you know, I came to realize how deeply important tradition was when I actually started taking a boga again and then went to train. And actually, uh, according to the Bwiti tradition, you can't have a boga without Bwiti and Bwiti without a boga. And we really believe that and we understand that. So like we just talked about integration, the Bwiti tradition gives them the tools within the retreat to, to best use the experience to grow and heal. And then it also is the tools to make a good life for themselves because it's, it's teaches them. Um, the tradition is insane. It's like, it's like a kind of like stoic. If I was to put it in Western terms, it's kind of similar to stoicism and Buddhism. Um, but really, I mean, most indigenous traditions have are deeply rooted in nature and connecting direct experience with the world. So that's kind of like where it's pointing them. Um, but by the end of the retreat, they'll be able to recite, you know, Bwiti teachings and stuff like that. And then we'll kind of send them an info packet at the end, uh, integration packet, sorry, at the end that has like the teachings on it. And then also a chance to like schedule the integration calls and stuff. But the medical side of things is, is pretty simple. It's, you know, we have a, a highly experienced nurse with like t- two decades of experience who's also trained in the traditional side of things. Uh, she's like the head of the medical department and we're bringing on a detox doctor who's a specialist in detox. You don't really need a, d- a doctor for the psycho-spiritual retreats. It's kind of overkill. Um, but for the detox side of things, it's important because sometimes you'll need to switch medications and do things like that. Um, but yeah, so I mean, we're, we're also, you know, one of the biggest things is we're, you know, as I said, with the tradition, we're also uh, deeply committed to reciprocity. So, I mean, one of the, we know where this all came from. And we're like, one of the biggest things in Buiti is gratitude. And uh, we say life is a gift and we're, you know, we're constantly trying to be more and more grateful for that gift. Um, and honestly, the, the gift of this Buiti tradition and aboga and everything around it has been so immense for all of us on the team. So what we do is, we're, we're, we're in constant contact with the, um, with the village that we trained with and, uh, all of our medicine comes from there. Uh, we know exactly where it came from, but, you know, we can show guest videos of the whole, a magical process of preparing it in the traditional way. Um, so yeah, I mean, we're just, we're deeply tied to the, uh, to the village and actually I volunteer my time. Uh, my fiance volunteers her time. Uh, kind of helping them and managing their operations and stuff over there because they do retreats there too. But it's, uh, you know, it's kind of challenging with the internet there and stuff like that to manage it from there. So we kind of help them with that and in any other way we can. And obviously we also help them financially as well. So that's kind of like an overview of the reciprocity side of things, but it's something we're always constantly trying to improve. There's actually a nonprofit that uh, we have called Baines Badimbu which translates to children of the forest. (laughs) Um, And that's actually uh, the nonprofit started uh, 
in our village in Gabon. And uh, we, I, I kind of run operations for that. We're helping them to right now, currently, they're actually putting in water in the village uh, for the first time ever. And I also got to be there when they got electricity for the first time without a generator. It was pretty awesome. Um, so, yeah, so there's a lot going on there. Um, but the other side of things is uh, kind of the, I, I think we'll talk a little bit about why I, I got into this work later. But, um, you know, one of the things our, all of our team is really committed to is equitable access, because one of the things we don't want to happen is for somebody to be turned away from uh, these powerful plant medicines because they don't have enough money. Um, especially, you know, if you're looking at uh, addicts or people who are struggling with like trauma or mental illness and stuff, sometimes they might not necessarily be able to hold down a job or different things like that. So uh, we've explored a number of different ways of doing that. We first tried out uh, sliding scale, but it didn't really work out as well uh, here in Europe because they people didn't seem to understand it. So what we did do is we switched over to a more like set price program and then people just email us and tell us their situation and then we work with them. Um, and we don't turn anyone away for lack of funds, uh, but we do also have another side of the screening process. So we do turn people away for a lot of other things, but never that. Um, and actually, one of the things that we're pretty much finished making, we're just on the website now, uh, is our, a new company called Equitable Access. Uh, and this is going to be kind of like a way for people to directly donate to uh, a, a plant medicine treatment uh, of somebody that we vetted just to make sure because we want to make sure that they're doing they're good people doing good work uh, before we send people there because the whole point of this is healing. Um, so uh, one of the things I noticed with kind of growing up in the addiction background uh, is every time, unfortunately, someone passed away, people were posting links to donate to programs that don't necessarily help. I mean, uh, rehab it tends to have a cyclical thing and people kind of get caught up in that. Uh, there might be like uh, helplines or different stuff like that. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with those things. But what I am saying is when you know how to heal people for addiction, it's very frustrating that there's they don't have access to this stuff. And if you were to ask most of my friends uh, who were friends with those that passed, they would also prefer to donate to something like this that's actually going to directly help someone's healing. So that's kind of like why we created that. And, uh, you know, by the end of this year, we should have multiple different um, kind of providers on it and uh, the ability to directly donate to people's healing. Awesome. So that's really great. And I'll make sure I include a link to like your website in the show notes. That way listeners can keep up with that and look for that link and also, you know, get more information um, on root healing, all the things that we've talked about in terms of like treating addiction. Um, can you speak a little bit to Maybe I don't know if you like percentages of individuals who have been successful in um, in overcoming addiction and not going back to like addictive behaviors compared to others who may have I guess we would call it relapse essentially. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think it would the easiest way would maybe I can send you some links to uh, like some data that you could post on the show notes as well. 
Um, cause there's a lot of really good data about the, I mean, most of it's about the efficacy of ibogaine because just because that's like the most studied and, um, kind of, it's the most potential to be a pharmaceutical drug. So obviously it's going to get the most funding and studying and stuff like that. Um, but I can also share some of the studies even about some of the other alkaloids. Uh, there's, uh, two of the other alkaloids. I forget the other one, but it's a bogamine and, and, uh, the other alkaloid that are have been proven to almost be more anti-addictive than ibogaine. Um, so they have like similar anti-addictive properties and they may even be more effective. Um, but, uh, I mean, ibogaine's like a miracle. It's the, the data is, that's there is it works, um, as long as the person actually wants to heal. And as far as like the just purely physical side, that's not really left to them it does prevent withdrawal symptoms. It does get them through the entire withdrawal process without feeling strong withdrawal symptoms. Uh, so on a physical level, it definitely is the most anti-addictive thing on the planet, I would say. Um, and as far as our personal data, I don't like to do to give that because it's obviously anecdotal. Um, but I mean, we've pretty much had 100% success rate. So, uh, you know, people don't relapse like we always joke actually one of our guests that that came uh he had this really deep strong british accent and he showed up and he was all excited he was like saying he wanted to work with us and and all of that stuff and he would stay and help uh and by the end of the retreat yeah um, without using a curse word he said i'm done i'm completely done i'm done and he was screaming it so loud in his british accent and he wanted nothing to do with us um, but that's like an extreme example, but that's actually kind of, I, I like to use that because that's like kind of what happens to people by the, by the end of this They they realize like what, not just like on a physical level, what it did to them, but a boga goes to the root causes of these addictions. And that's, that's why it works because, you know, if, if people are going to go to a rehab or things like that, yeah, that's great. They, you know, even a detox, you know, a traditional detox center, they can get off of the drugs, if they're, if they're lucky enough that the people don't put them on Suboxone or methadone or one of those other things, which actually don't ever do that if you're listening, because that is the only thing that really kind of hinders our work as well. So, um, cause that stuff just like sticks to your bones. It's like impossible to get out. But basically they, you know, if you're going to a detox center and then you're coming out and you haven't healed the root causes of the addiction, you're going to go right back out there. Uh, and that's why, like I said in, before, when we were explaining the, the program of our detox program, that we have to do two weeks to a month because we want to make sure we won't let someone leave if they haven't healed that root cause of the addiction. Uh, and that's why, you know, even if they have to do five, sometimes it could be five or six ceremonies after uh, after their detox, we make sure that they get that because once they have that, it's like. The problem here is that their people are in the addiction space are dependent on others for their success. You know what I mean? They're dependent on these programs. They're dependent on these medications. They're dependent on every, you know, all sorts of stuff. And I'm not trashing like 12 step programs or anything like that. Cause I do think that they're a great way for an emergency kind of intervention into those things. But you know, they, you're still dependent on all those external things. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to give you that, you know, connect you to yourself so that you, once you know who you are and what you want, you, you kind of don't need anybody else. 
And once you've healed those root causes of your addiction and you can just be yourself in reality, uh, you're not trying to escape anything anymore because you know how awesome and beautiful that is. Uh, so yeah, we're, I mean, we're pretty confident in the results and stuff like that, but, uh, for all the science nerds out there, I can definitely send some, some good data. Awesome. That's so great. And there's so much that you said in there that all I can say is just like, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so much. Um, one addressing those those root causes you know getting down to like the things that are so deep inside of you that are really um causing those uh, you know using addiction essentially as a coping mechanism to deal mm -hmm. with the, whatever those issues are and um and you know just the power of you know in your experience obviously iboga and and ibogaine but also just uh, psychedelics we're seeing so much clinical research come out and its ability to treat different types of addictions um, because it has that ability to get to that root cause where traditional treatment options don't always um, aim for that. Um, mm. So yes to all of that. And another one of just yes to um, the treatment options that put individuals on Suboxone um, or methadone or something like that. I can't, the, the number of people that I know that have switched from um, you know, trying to get off of heroin and they end up on Suboxone and then they end up being mm. essentially addicted to Suboxone for like 10 plus years. And, you know, they're scared to get off of it because they talk about how the withdrawal from Suboxone is way more painful and way more intense than just trying to withdraw off of heroin. Um, just yes to so much of that in there. Yeah, yeah it's insanity. It's insanity. Yeah. And it's, and it can be frustrating when we look at the Western medical model and how it keeps kind of reiterating like, Oh, just put some months on Suboxone and it will work out when, you know, your you know, your retreat is looking at those root causes. It's giving them time to detox and then it gives them time to get to those root causes. And I, and I like how, you know, you're honest and being like, we, you know, you'll do however many, you know, um, ceremonies are necessary for them to, to get deep down within themselves and, and confront those root causes before they're ready to kind of go back into, you know, everyday life as their new self, essentially. Mm, totally. Yeah. They should be excited about life, you know, cause actually the, 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 you know, addiction, the opposite of addiction is just loving life. You know, there's nothing to escape if you love your life. And, and if, if that's our goal. So basically it's just making them super excited and just ready to go live their lives by the time they leave. Yeah, that's so wonderful. That was, oh, that's so great. Um, it makes me think about something because um, we talk a lot about addiction and we just talked about equitable access. I'm curious to kind of pick your brain on um, on specifically populations um, like BIPOC populations where they live with this legacy of um, trauma, you know, and how your retreats or how using Iboga can help them with that. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously I'm a white male. So like my opinion on this is, is, uh, you know, very limited. And I admit that. Uh, and that's one thing that our entire team is always trying to be aware of is kind of, you know, our privilege and kind of our backgrounds and just uh, always trying to be better at, at admitting of where we come from and kind of taking responsibility for that. But what we do, I mean, we offer BIPOC discounts and stuff like that. And uh, we're, we, we, I mean, most of our staff, we're pretty diverse staff. Um, but yeah, I mean, to talk about trauma in the sense, I don't want to just like point the finger at, uh, at BIPOC, but anyone with like ancestral trauma or things like that in their background, uh, we've seen amazing things happen. Um, 
you know, just to give you one example, there was a Cameroonian, a woman of Cameroonian descent, but she, you know, she was living in Pennsylvania, but came to our retreat. And uh, we got a little scared one time because she started like shaking and uh, going, ah, ta, 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 ah, ta, 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 ta. And we were like, oh no, like we thought she might be having a seizure, but quickly realized like, oh, uh, she's, she's like doing that on purpose. And it's, it's part of her healing experience. Um, typically people are pretty still, so that's why we're a little freaked out. And we, so we, you're also very clear on a boga. So we kind of asked her like, what's going on? And she's like, my ancestors have come to kind of heal me of everything. And, uh, she was like, that was, that was like the result of like the healing going through her body. Um, but on a, you know, on, we've seen countless things of like ancestral trauma where we kind of help the people to cut the cord. Um, another example actually was a German woman whose uh, relative was a high-ranking Nazi. And so on the other side of that, she also was able to do some healing, where she even, she joked that she was going to write a book about the experience afterworld called Vomiting Out World War II or Purging World War II or something. Um, because she, that was her, her experience was the other side of kind of getting, disconnecting from the people causing the harm. So it's very weird. Uh, I mean, in Bwiti, we kind of know, but it's very weird to us in the West to understand the concepts of like ancestors and uh, kind of like family lines and lineages and stuff. But actually, scientifically, it can be explained with like epigenetics and understanding um, kind of DNA and, and how stuff is passed on. Uh, they've done studies, uh, which I could also share a link to, of like um, the lifespans of Holocaust survivors' children. And they were, they were affected in like, you know, different studies like that, where they were able to show that traumatic experience down the family line was still affecting them today. Um, and just on the spiritual side of things as being a provider of this medicine, I see it all the time. I mean, just this last retreat, I was helping someone to cut the cords of their family because, uh, yeah, they were from Morocco and, and there, there was just like a bunch of uh, actually black magic potentially. So it sounds crazy, I know, but uh, yeah, that's that's one thing that that aboga could be amazing for, uh, and it's not just for BIPOC people; it's like anyone with a history of trauma in their background. But I've also seen in the village um, some really amazing things for uh, BIPOC people who have gone there uh, because I don't know uh, are the shamans a little more fit to kind of treat them. I feel like uh, and get there, but they were they did they had experiences of almost like going back to the slave ships and and uh, experiencing what their relatives experienced and stuff. And I actually personally, without rambling too much, have had experience with this because part of my healing was to go back and see what uh, what happened to people in my family down the line. Wow, that's incredibly powerful, and I'm glad that you you know speak to this that it's BIPOC populations among anyone who's had trauma that is essentially passed down to them. And I think it really speaks because I think everyone somehow carries trauma in some way, shape, or form. And mm-hmm. um, this type of retreat, this type of treatment, can be incredibly beneficial to people. So that's really inspiring to know that there really is something out there that can help people in such a a diverse way yeah we all have ancestors and uh and that that could be a huge help in our lives actually too it doesn't have to be all bad (laughs) 
And I like how you bring in, because I'm an anthropologist, so of course I'm super <laughs> the cultural, right? <laughs> so I love that you bring in how individual cultural perspectives and identities play a role in people's experiences and in how their trauma manifests for them and how they work through that process of essentially processing trauma based on sure. cultural um, frameworks that we we hold ourselves in. Um, it's just so fascinating. I, I love anthropology. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Um, and I just really love too how it's this balance between like this very cultural anthropology type of side, but there's also this um, this conjunction that it has with you know Western medicine too, and how you somehow find a way to bring the two together in, in something that often is this very separate dichotomous perspective. Uh, it's very yes. Yeah, that's that's that. If you were saying what makes root healing unique is like we're that's that's it right there. We're really trying to bring these two things together because we think that they're the same, actually. You know, um, and also, yeah, like you know, everything is is science, really. You know, like I, I don't necessarily think that like Western science. I, I mean, I strongly don't think that Western science is better than Bwiti science. You know, but actually, with the definition of Bwiti, by the way, Bwiti is the spiritual tradition that we practice around the Voga. Um, but Bwiti is actually the study of life itself. So that's like, that's what the definition of it means. So by definition, Bwiti are, are scientists, you know, whether you want to, you know, call it that or not, but so it's kind of, it kind of is all science. So it kind of all fits, if you will. Awesome. That's so cool. Um, you gave us so much information on root healing. That's so awesome. Um, before we move on to kind of your journey of how you ended up in this spot to begin with, I do have one more question. Um, so oftentimes when it comes to working with plant medicine or even people thinking about developing retreats for themselves, they have to overcome this battle of like, how do they do this legally? So how does root healing work with <laughs> plant medicine and deal with the legal side of things? For sure. And uh, yeah, I mean, this is new territory. So we're, we're kind of learning as we go. Um, but basically, yeah, that was something that was very important to me. Uh, we had been doing retreats in the actually underground in the United States. I guess it's safe to say that now. Uh, and also in Mexico, but I really wanted to, you know, as psychedelics and, and this whole space is kind of growing in popularity and, uh, it seems like it's very likely that it will begin to be more and more easy to kind of get legal access to. Um, I wanted to kind of set a bar, you know, and kind of like create a place that was dedicated to, to, you know, finding a way to make it legal, safe, and really set a standard before, uh, before those things open up so that eventually if, you know, say it does become legal in the United States, we could also do the same thing over there and things like that. So that being said in Portugal, uh, you know, drugs are decriminalized, but that actually doesn't even... Um, apply to a boga because it's completely unscheduled. Um, and so that's actually why we're able to do this. If you were doing ayahuasca, it would be, it wouldn't be legal to do that. Um, and what we did is we created, you know, a legal business that we were very uh, careful in describing like the, the purposes of the business, you know, it was like mental health, healing and stuff like that. And now, um, I actually just spoke to the lawyers again this morning. We're like, we're getting the medical licensing. Um, and so, and we also have to get hotel licensing too, because we're covering like all the bases. And this has uh, made us 
very far from profitable at this at this early stage, but it's so important to us because we know what we're doing here. It's not just about uh, setting up root healing correctly. It's about kind of figuring out and setting an example so that uh, authorities and other places can see a place where we're doing things both tradition, you know, because all the other examples are the medical side. Um, there are some really good places uh, in, in the plant medicine space that are very like science oriented and medical and stuff like that. And we're trying to highlight that that can also be done with like the traditional way of doing things and medicine. So in that sense, we're, yeah, we're, it's, it's a bigger idea. Um, but we're constantly making sure that we're fully legal here in Portugal and wherever else we might be. Okay. That's awesome. Now, cause yes, you have one in Portugal. Um, and I think, are you getting ready to open up a second location somewhere else too? Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't say opening up a second location. We're doing retreats, uh, in Thailand and we will be doing that. And Thailand also is another example. There's actually a, there's been a company there for a long time for over 10 years that's doing ibogaine treatments. Um, but it's, it's decriminalized. It's, it's not even uh, scheduled in uh, Thailand either. Um, and actually Thailand is a place where I used to live there for like five years. Uh, and it's like my spiritual home. I love it there. So uh, it's always actually been my dream to set one up there. Um, but as far as like what you said, like this legal pathway, we saw Portugal as the, the best place for the first stepping stone to kind of doing that in other places. Okay. That's interesting. Um, I think that's useful for listeners who are interested in like, how do we overcome these legal challenges like that? <laughs> that nature of it being um, unscheduled is really a key part of that. So that's interesting. Um, I think one last thing I want to do is just maybe just set up kind of a general uh, kind of timeline maybe of what it looks like to be someone who's interested in doing a retreat with root healing. So you talk about this, mm. um, like the screening process beforehand. Can you talk a little bit about what that involves? And then you talked a little bit about like the timeline of, you know, um, when they show up, they, they get to settle in, they get to, they do the first ceremony, they have a day of working through kind of uh, going out and exploring for a little bit, then they do a second ceremony. Um, and then post the retreat is essentially integration. But can you just kind of talk a little bit more about that timeline um, so that it sets it up as this kind of picture sure. for our listeners? Yeah, yeah. So let's just assume you're like searching for an aboga center online or whatever, and you find root healing. You'll go to our website or um, call us or whatever, and or send a message on one of the different places. Once we have uh, your email and contact information, or actually anyone that kind of applies in that way, we'll get an information packet about the company that gives like an overview um, and immediately gives them a link for the ability to complete the health questionnaire, which the health questionnaire is always the first step to anything we do, um, just to save their time and our time. And also because we love to get on the phone with them as soon as possible. So uh, basically getting on the phone before the health questionnaire we've seen is it's kind of pointless because we really can use that information to have like use the best of both people's time. So we send them that right away. Once they complete the health questionnaire, they are given a, a option to create a, uh, to schedule a call with one of us. And then on that call, it's kind of like an intake call and it will usually be with our nurse and uh, one of the other providers or sometimes just the nurse. And, um, she'll basically go over 
she'll, she'll review your health questionnaire before doing that and then kind of go over things with you. And um, I'll be honest, we are looking for other things just besides the health questionnaire. Like I said, we want to make sure that people are serious about healing and that that's why they're coming to us. First of all, we want to make sure that they actually want to do it and that they know what they're getting into. Um, and then we also just want to make sure that they didn't leave anything out of their health questionnaire or aren't lying about anything. And uh, particularly with addicts and detoxes, um, we just have to assume that everything's a lie. And I'm not saying that they're innately liars. I'm just saying it's a difficult thing of, of addiction. Um, so, yeah, so we're trying to figure out all of that information. And then after, after the intake call, we also think people can ask questions and get everything that they need to know about, about us and our team. And usually sometimes people want to talk to one of the providers like myself or Steven, one of the lead providers as well. And that's totally fine. And we, we love doing it because it also helps us to prepare. Um, and then from the time that some, the, when someone actually arrives, then we do like their kind of on-site intake. Um, and it's very different for both retreats. Like, so if this was, if let's say it's a psycho-spiritual retreat, we show you to your room and then we do like an, a kind of initial talk and get kind of getting to know where you're at. And then the following day is when we do like the deeper counseling. If this is a detox, then we're going to take you into the another room, uh, take your bags and put them aside and the bags will actually be searched. Um, we'll actually kind of strip search them as well. Uh, drug test them just to make sure uh, because most a lot of the times people are showing up on drugs like if, if they're if they're a heroin user that's okay if they're on heroin but we just want to make sure they're not also on Xanax or you know something else as well um, so we'll do that and then so that intake process is very different but also with the detoxes we're kind of starting the treatment right away because like I said before sometimes uh, sometimes they'll lie about things but one thing they won't ever lie about is their detox window they will never, because they're so afraid, and, and, and understandably so, of, of detox uh, withdrawals kicking in. So uh, we have to go off of that withdrawal window, and sometimes people are flying from very far away. Uh, so let's say their detox window is, is like, or their withdrawal window is like eight hours, and they have a six-hour flight. We have to start giving them the aboga right away. Um because you want to make sure that there's enough aboga in their system before uh, the withdrawal symptoms kick in because withdrawal symptoms will prevent their ability of even taking aboga. So yeah, so the, it's super intense for the, for the detox people, but for the psycho-spiritual people, it's more of like kind of just landing and settling in. Um, and then, so the first day of retreat, people are just arriving for a psycho-spiritual, like I said. And then the second day is the ceremony day, but it won't happen until that night. Uh, it's very important to us to wait until the uh, darkness and uh, the sunset in order to um, start because for us, the spirits we work with come out at night. Um, and during the day leading up to that, what we're doing is we're, we're kind of counseling people individually uh, and really getting to know their intentions and stuff and kind of really just getting them to say it out loud, you know, a lot of the stuff that they need. And then once they do that, we work with them to create some questions. Um, and these questions are what we'll use in the psycho-spiritual ceremony. And it's always just questions about their own life. We keep them focused on that, not like the nature of the universe or anything like that. Because aboga is all about you. It's turning inward, not outward. So that we're, we're kind of formulating questions that are going to get them to the root of who they are in their life.
um, and the healing that they need, whatever specifically that is. Um, and then that night starts the ceremony. Uh, the ceremony is like done around a fire, the initial part of it. And we'll basically sit around the fire and it's to do it just like the Bwiti have for thousands of years, telling Bwiti, teaching about the Bwiti tradition, kind of allowing guests to speak in, and towards the fire as well, what their, what their intentions are again, and really what they want out of it. Uh, and actually this, this fire talk ceremony, which is what we call it, uh, is a healing in itself. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing. Cause it's just, it's these very simple, clear Bwiti teachings that kind of just click for people. Um, and that's a good way to go into doing a boga. Uh, and then, so usually after about an hour, hour and a half of us talking, we will start giving the medicine. And everyone has a different tolerance. And the way that we do it is very safe and careful. So we space everything out. Um, and actually, this is the way that we do it as well. We give it uh, an hour to an hour and a half between doses. And we know exactly what to look for to see how someone's feeling. So uh, with our medicine, usually it's one or two scoops. But sometimes it can be more. And uh Basically, we're, we're talking that whole time that they're at the fire and eventually everyone is laying down. And you kind of know <laughs> when people are ready to lay down, but they'll also usually tell you. Uh, we're always looking during the fire and where everyone's at. And once you see someone kind of slouching or not paying attention, uh, we'll take them to go lay down in what we call the temple space. And uh, that's just because this is where all, the actual ceremony happens. And... Once everyone's, well, once anyone's laying in there, we'll turn the music on, get the candles going, and someone will be be in there with them, one of the people of our team, and then the other people will still be at the fire. And then by the time everyone's there, everyone will be lying down in the temple space until morning. Uh, we wait until sunrise to take them back to their rooms. And at some point in the night, Depending on, like I said, there's a there's a whole detox phase where they're detoxing physically and mentally. So once that is complete, which we're able to kind of see, we will do a psycho-spiritual journey with them. And the psycho-spiritual journey, I, I can't go into too much detail because the element of surprise is important. But we use the questions and we connect you to your soul. And the reason we do that, like I said, is because once someone once someone knows who they are and knows themselves and their soul. They can do anything they want. And for us, that's our purpose is to just be, to just be ourselves. Uh, so, so that's like the, the main goal is kind of connecting you to your soul, getting the answers to your life that you need. Um, and then usually that brings about all the healing that someone needs, but sometimes we'll kind of guide them on that too. Like you said, uh, if they have ancestral trauma, sometimes we'll have to take them directly to that and cut the cord. Um, sometimes we'll, connect them to uh, ancestors and things like that. And then uh, when we bring them to their room in the next morning, which is what we call processing day, that's when all the good stuff happens to me. Like my favorite, that's my favorite part. Uh, <laughs> it's like nobody, it's funny because like the whole, it's kind of like a meditation retreat at that stage. Like, I don't know if anyone uh, of the listeners have been on one, but like they're, they have to sit with themselves for the, for the day and not distract themselves. Like we take their phones, uh, you know, we're bringing them food to them, breakfast in bed, all that stuff. But 
they usually don't eat it, but lunch, maybe some soup, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, they're, they're kind of just laying there and, and, uh, processing, like I said, all the emotions that have been stored all of their life, but also getting realizations and epiphanies about their life and, uh, just getting a deep, deep clarity on who they are and what they want to do for the future. Um, so that's processing day. And then following the first processing day, we go into integrate or I mean, into integration day and second ceremony. And that's basically just, a, you know, we'll take somebody, we'll take them out to Montserrat or uh, like the beach. Montserrat's this like beautiful garden palace thing that's actually right next to the center um, or to the beach here or to Sintra. But usually on the, the first integration day, it's either the beach or Montserrat. And we'll talk to them while we're on that trip about kind of what happened, what came up, and that will help us to form new questions or, uh, uh, you know, edit the questions that they did have the last ceremony uh, for the ceremony that would usually happen that night. Um, We are flexible. Sometimes it happens the following night, kind of depending on where everyone's at. And then once we do that ceremony, it kind of just follows the same process, fire talk, uh, you know, ceremony space into the processing day and then the last integration day is always a lot of fun we we go out to pizza and uh Sintra town beach if we hadn't you know things like that but uh it's cool because like after a voga your serotonin's like through the roof too so everybody's just super amped and having a good time uh and just it's cool because you see them when they come in and they you know they're kind of down and struggling and then Uh, By the end of the week, everybody's just so happy. All right. That was a great explanation um, and very useful. I think that helps kind of lay out exactly what that process really looks like um, for individuals who are interested in kind of figuring out is this is something that they would like to create on their own or even participate. Maybe that's something Mm. that like they're feeling in their soul that they need. Um, So I think that's really useful. I think something interesting that I didn't know about Iboga that you just brought up too is that... um, sometimes we think of other psychedelics with, with MDMA, it like it uses your serotonin in the experience. So the next day you wake up and you're depleted of serotonin. Right. And I know yeah, that, like, like you just said, it puts it through the roof, which creates a whole different type of experience afterwards that you feel like elated and really um, like upbeat, which is something I didn't know was so different about it compared to some other, um, some other substances, which is really, interesting. yeah. Well, Many of the classical psychedelics work on like the 5H2A, you know, serotonin receptor, but boga works on like kind of a bunch. Like it's like dopamine, serotonin, like so many different things um, balancing you out. And yeah, it really just, it gives you the serotonin boost when you need it the most. (laughs) That's so interesting. So interesting. Okay. I could probably ask you questions for ever on this but um i know our listeners are really interested they they know about root healing they have a basic understanding of it now um so i think they're probably really interested to hear about how you got to root healing you know how, what ended up kind of helping you um what ended up making you want to start root healing so i i think we can kind of start segueing over into cool. kind of mapping out that journey um, and if we want to get started, I think maybe the best question we can start with is what made you want to start something like root healing? Uh, for me, it's just seeing people that are struggling out there. And um, once I realized that there was something that can actually heal them, 
uh, it wasn't a question of me whether or not I should do this. Like it was like the only thing I could ever imagine doing. Um, especially like the more and more I do it, the more amazed I am. So yeah, it's, it's pretty remarkable. Um, but for me personal, on a personal level, I grew up with a mother with mental illness. Um, she was suicidal and bipolar, uh, and she herself was abused. Um, so that kind of is one of the main reasons a lot of this is kind of dedicated to her, uh, because she eventually did commit suicide and I wasn't able to help. Um, but you know, now, you know, since then I've also lost many, many friends to addiction. Uh, and just, I just see like, it's, it's just frustrating to see this kind of like, uh, unhealthy way of thinking and unhealthy relationship to the mind, uh, that the society kind of forces us into actually. So it's like, it's, it's just, it's a difficult situation, but to know that I have this like blue pill, if you will, of like the matrix to get them all out of that way of thinking and set them free. Uh, that's why, that's why I wanted to start root healing. And because I wanted to give, more access to more people and not just people who are like psychonauts and stuff like that. It was really important to kind of do that in a, in a legal way. Um, because yeah, like I, like since we did that, like we used to work in the United States underground and stuff and we would get a lot of really awesome people, um, that kind of already knew about all of this stuff. But since we've been here in Portugal and working in Europe, uh, we've been getting a lot of people that have never done anything. Like some of people haven't even drank alcohol. And they're just coming uh, to our retreats because we're creating that that place that they can trust. That's really interesting that you're starting to get people who have literally never taken anything because it makes me think of like the people in my life that I I can see the potential for plant medicine to help them. But the only way to convince them to ever do something like that is for them to feel comfortable like in that clinical setting. Um mm. But it's interesting to see how the model that root healing uses in, in bridging this cultural and traditional indigenous practices with um, some of that Western medicine can create an environment that make people feel safe um, to be able to, to seek that in, in a non-clinical setting, which is really, um, really fascinating to hear and see about. You have to feel safe in this in this space. Like it, 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 that people are really going in, turning, turning inwards and like going right for the truth of, of very challenging and difficult situations. And if, if they don't trust you, uh, they might block that and, and never go there, or it just might not have the same results. Um, so yeah, trust is actually probably the most important thing for sure. All right. So ultimately root healing is very, it's, it's very born out of your personal experiences um, with your mother and the other people in your life that you lost. So, Oh, and sorry, I was an addict as well. <laughs> yeah. So that was, there's a whole nother part of me struggling with, with that and all of those things also. Um, and also just kind of negative thought patterns as well. So it's, it's not just about me kind of offering that to people who, because of the people in my life that have suffered, I also, I also suffered and, and came out of that and know that it can help. Okay. Interesting. So it's hard to, where do we start? You know, um, <laughs> I guess that's a question, right? Where, where would you say that your journey to, 
being on the path that led you to to creating root healing, where would you say that that journey started? Uh, I'd say it started when I was 13 or 14 years old. Um, like I said, my, I, my mother was struggling with mental illness. I was kind of living with her and I was getting into a lot of trouble uh, from a very young age, kind of what you would call it. They, they call it in the U.S. as an at-risk teen. Um, and I was getting sent to all sorts of programs and things like that. Um, getting arrested, getting into drugs. Um, and at one point in that time frame, like around 13 or 14 years old, I tried LSD for the first time. Uh, and from that moment, I kind of had a totally different relationship with drugs. Like in general, I still use drugs for a large part of many years after that. But I found, uh, when it came to psychedelics, it was a source of kind of morality and a natural morality and natural ethics, a natural connection to the world and the universe, uh, connection to God, for lack of a better word. It was, you know, it was so remarkable for me to have that experience that it, it just completely changed how I think. I became obsessed with psychedelics. Um, and from that point, started to really study and research them. And I think right around that time, if not like six months after, I first heard, saw and read about aboga. And from the time that I did, I got chills up my spine and just kind of was deeply interested in like understanding this crazy African, you know, psychoactive plant. And so I did all the research and studying, but it wasn't until I was in my mid 20s. when I was living in Thailand that I actually got to try it for the first time. And the reason I was doing that is because I was going through a difficult time in my life and needed to make a transition and it just kind of perfectly aligned. And when I did that, it was the most amazing experience of my entire life. Uh, And so the only thing that I will say, like it, it showed me what's possible. It literally was going through the files of my mind, reviewing memories with me and like making sure I had the the correct association with those memories and showing me the truth of each one. And it was super organized, my experience. It was almost like it was going through a filing cabinet, like just one by one, just like, here, look at this. Do you get this? Okay, now moving on. And and it just kept going through most of my life. Uh, And to me, that was just so amazing because it's it's like unlike any other of the other psychedelics or other plant medicines. It's it's not these like external visions where you're, you're seeing, you know, a jaguar take you to a unicorn or whatever, um, or, you know, crazy fractal imagery. It's uh, pointing you directly at yourself. And it's like showing you and cl- working together with you to clean, clean you up and get you uh, to being 100% genuine yourself. And to me, that was so remarkable. But what I did learn from that, which kind of helped shape root healing, is that I did it on my own. I didn't do it in a traditional context. I didn't do it with uh, trained providers. Um, I was lucky enough to find someone who had worked with it before to sit with me, but uh, I wasn't, and I did my own EKGs and all of that stuff, because like I said, I've been researching this since I was 14, so I was ready. Um, But I wasn't ready in the way that I needed to be. And so I ended up eventually after like a year or so kind of slipping back into drugs and, and screwing up up until, uh, I made the choice to move to Medellin, Colombia as a drug addict, which was not a good call and had a mental breakdown there. Um, 
And after my mental breakdown, that was there was another huge shift. And I kind of turned towards meditation and practices that I also do on the side. Uh, I, I practice and study Vajrayana Buddhism as well. Um, and that was kind of the start of that journey. And it, it got me to the point after about a year of like processing on my own that I was ready to turn back to a, to a boga. And I wanted to do it in the traditional way because I had learned from that. Um, and so I reached out to the shaman in, in Gabon and we connected and he was like, come on over. And uh, when when I got there, he, he explained to me that there was like a training program as well after I had done a few ceremonies. And um, I mean, first of all, that first ceremony, though, actually, I don't want to skip over it because it was uh, remarkable. That was the one where I saw my family lineage and kind of went through all of that stuff. And it was like a whole different side of the Aboga experience. So whereas I had that organized, like very clear, direct um, first ceremony, this one was way spiritual and like much more oriented towards like ancestors, my, my life and my connection to this life. And I met my soul. Uh, and that, so that kind of changed everything for me. And I immediately knew that this was what I wanted to do. I kind of already knew that before anyway. So anybody in my life, if you were to ask them, even when I was like in my twenties, what does Ryan want to do? They would have said to work with the Boga, but, um, it, you know, it was so clear at that point. And I'm so glad that it happened then after, after I had done the self work on my own actually, um, because, yeah, it was, it was a perfect timing. And so uh, from that point on, I, I have been back and forth to the village three times now. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's been amazing. I'm, I'm, I'm constantly learning more and studying the Bwiti tradition. Uh, and that in itself has been just, just Bwiti alone outside of Aboga has been so remarkable and amazing for me. And also just meeting the people there in the village in Gabon you know, such beautiful people that are just living so simply and connected directly to their lives. You know, they're just present all the time. And it was, it was kind of funny to see that after doing a year of like meditation, <laughs> because, you know, in the West, we like segment out meditation and we use it as a way to like force ourselves or bring ourselves back to the present moment. But they just like come wake up and they just like live there. They just live present and they're, they wake up happy with gratitude and just live happily. So, you know, seeing that um, and training in that makes me think that it would be crazy to, to work with a boga outside of the tradition. Um, because actually uh, I left out an important part of everything that in the Bwiti tradition comes from a boga itself. So from the time that, according to the Bwiti, um, from the time that they first got introduced to Aboga thousands of years ago, um, they kind of started with just, it was actually two women who took it the first time. I'm not going to get into too much of the story um, because the men were too afraid. <laughs> and the, uh, the two women who first took Aboga had this remarkable experience. And the second woman actually uh, had a conversation with Aboga itself. And in that conversation, Aboga said, I see you guys asking all these questions, you know, and come to me if you, you know, just take me if you want answers. And that's kind of why we use questions in our ceremony and the root of all of that. But from that point, 
Aboga gave them everything in the Bwiti tradition, from how to set up the temple to how to make the songs, all the music, everything. Uh, and I like I like Aboga's masterpiece because it's it's beautiful, and it and it just works. It's like the the two and two go together. I mean, people just it just clicks for them once they have a little bit of medicine in them. That's really such an incredible journey and story to tell. So first, thank you for sharing that with me and with our listeners. Um, It's just, it's so beautiful to hear all of that. And I have, I feel like I have so many questions. I'm like, where do I start? I think one of the the first things that I, I recognize overall is that it doesn't seem like you have any type of I don't know how to describe it. Maybe like we can describe it as like formal trading or like, mm. um, you know, and, and I think some of our other guests are really ingrained in, you know, formal academia. So this is a really different approach to carving your space within the psychedelic realm. Um, so can you speak a little bit more about how you essentially gained this knowledge yourself and what resources were the most important and helping you in your journey? For sure. And uh, I mean, I would I would be lying if I thought I just came up with this all on my own or have been successful at this on my own because I do have a background in business. Um, so even when I was uh, using drugs and, and even in Medellin, the whole reason I moved to Medellin was for work. Um, I was a workaholic and just using that to continue working more. But uh, but basically that's so that was my background. So I actually I've actually also set up a business for this current the, the business that I used to work for uh, in Thailand as well. So I had I have a lot of experience in like running operations because I ran operations for it's um, it's basically like chauffeurs on demand uh, in the tri-state area of New York and there was like fifty to hundred drivers at all times that I was kind of in charge of managing um, and the call center and things like that. So I have a lot of like management and business and, and kind of operations experience, but uh, nothing in, in the sense of like mental health training or things like that. Other than the fact that it's kind of always been in my life. Uh, my mom would take me to AA meetings and all those things. And uh, she would vary into like mental health and, and uh, you know, the DSM and all of that stuff. Um, so I kind of just self-studied on that as well, just as it was in my life. But, you know, the, tra- the the reason I'm able to be success, we're able to be successful at this work is 100% because of the Bwiti tradition, because we don't deviate from that. Um, so I do think like if someone was, you know, if someone was trying to do this, that doesn't necessarily already have like the credentials or things like that, um, which I certainly didn't, um, you know, you, you got to trust yourself, you know, just like really, uh, if this is what if this is what you want to do, if you want to go out there and help people, and you want to be in the plant medicine space, you can learn everything yourself. Honestly, the, with the internet and everything, it's all out there. But one thing I will say: if you're working with plant medicines like ayahuasca, peyote, you know any of the entheogens that indigenous people have experience with, I would tell you that the experience that they have is way more valuable than anything you can learn in the medical side of things. Because when something goes wrong or if there's something challenging um, with someone's treatment, they actually have the best solutions. You know, you would, if it was, if, you know, at our place, you know, the nurse is there and we have the doctors and stuff like that. Uh, and they would obviously help in an emergency situation. But we have these tricks of the trade that the Bwiti have learned over thousands of years of working with this medicine to 
quickly prevent the it from ever getting to that negative place. Um, and actually, we also have just even if it's herbal remedies, you know, we have a special oil that can immediately cancel an aboga ceremony. We have different things like that, a torch that we use a lot, actually, to bring someone back to like focus. Um, so they just I mean, it's endless tools uh, uh, that these people can have. So I would just recommend training kind of under a traditional sense if you're working with those medicines. From my point of view, there's obviously nothing wrong with the medical point of view either. Um, but that's what I would recommend. And actually, if anybody's interested in doing that in the aboga space, I will give my email at the end of this and they can reach out to me and I can get you set up with, uh, with training with the people that I trained with. Oh my gosh. That's such amazing. Um, thank you for offering that kind of connection to people and to our listeners. I know that they appreciate it. I was going to even ask like, how do you go about trying to find someone um, <laughs> that holds this, this such valuable traditional knowledge? How do you go about finding them and, and starting that conversation? Yeah, I mean, carefully, obviously, you know, because, uh, yeah, you just you just want to make sure that they're genuine and, or you know, and, and actually say, you know, are practicing the tradition and come from it. Um, but it is challenging, actually, like, you, you know, because there's just so much stuff out there now and so many training programs and so many things like that, that um, I would just I would always ask to talk to people that have done it, you know. And just really get to know people. And you can do that by, you know, one thing you could do is reach out to people. Let's say it's not even a boga you want to work with. There's like mushroom providers or different things like that. Reach out to the people that are doing it. Because in this space, it's not, you know, we're not in this like for the money, success or competition. And we certainly don't think like capitalists here. Like we want to help more people heal. Right. So uh, reaching out to someone who's already done it and kind of getting... Uh, their advice or their connection to whoever they trained with, I think would be the easiest way. Um, and I think you you would be successful with pretty much anyone you reach out to. The plant medicine space is just like one big family. So it's really good. So that advice really sounds like it connects with some of the other advice that we've gotten from other individuals on the podcast, where like that idea of reaching out, building a network to kind of, reach out to other people is really valuable. Um, it just kind of seems to be like that undercurring theme that we keep seeing in some of these uh, podcast episodes. So again, I think that's really important that you reiterate that um, and just kind of tailoring it to the fact that you're looking for specific individuals within the plant medicine world to help along with that journey. So I think that's really great information for our listeners. At least try that before you start spending a bunch of money on, on like programs and certifications and stuff. Yeah, good advice. Yeah, because there are programs <laughs> and stuff out there, but you, you don't necessarily always have to spend money to to gain that type of yeah, knowledge. Yeah, of course. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so it seems like so obviously um, training in the Buiti tradition and and uh, that type of experience was really essential to forming the knowledge base that you have. It also seems like just in general experiential knowledge in terms of like even going to those AA meetings with your mom. Um, and just having experience in, in that way is just super important to shaping the knowledge base in the work that you do now. So I think highlighting that for our listeners is important that it doesn't always have to be a formal education. Experiential knowledge is just as important um, to 
being able to shape skills and knowledge that help you in reaching that goal that you're, you're ultimately looking at. Yeah, totally. And even just like, you'd be surprised, like just looking at your own life, you'd be surprised what actually will help you in this path. You know, the whole time I was working for that company that I used to work for before, I was miserable and I hated it. And I never thought that I was ever going to get anything good out of it. But then when I wanted to start this and I needed the experience on how to kind of automate things and set everything up, uh, it was right there. So you'd be surprised what, uh, what you can pull from in your own life as well. Yeah, I think that's really important too. recognizing all those little skills and um, experiential skills that you gain along the way, even if it's from you know, something that you didn't think would ultimately contribute to that end goal is, is really important um, and valuable in its own way. Um, and I and I definitely want to reiterate, like, even as an academic, like I can sit and read about Buiti traditions all day long, but like it just doesn't, it's never going to touch in the same way that experiencing it would. Um, even as an anthropologist, I sit and read about other cultures and communities all the time. Um, and I, you know, I can't understand them until I go out and experience them in themselves. And, um, I, and I did spend a few weeks in Malawi a couple of years ago and I, oh, I, truly, cool. I truly fell in love with it. I fell in love with it so much that on, on the flight back to the United States, I literally cried because I didn't want to come back. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, and like reading about it didn't, it, you know, didn't prepare me for that experience. Uh, living it made me really you know, check my life and be like, okay, what are the values that I have in life versus what was it like for me to be in Malawi in comparison to their values in life? And it's just that experience is just so, um, just so, I, I don't even know if we can put a value on it. Um, and it's just no. it's so important. So I highly, highly uh, align with that. Um, Sweet. Even coming from academia, like the, there's limitations on academia too. <laughs> Of course. But I, I mean, I will also say that I also love that as well. Like I, I, I read, you know, a lot of the scientific literature about aboga, and I'm always constantly studying that. Um, we have like a, another medical expert who's going to be training our whole team from like the ibogaine side of things. And our nurses trained us all in CPR and all that stuff. So we're constantly learning and actually, you know, um, you know, we are, I guess, getting more and more certifications, if you will. But uh but the root of it all, like you said, it's it's the Buiti tradition because without that, we got nothing. Yeah, and again, I just that combination between the cultural, the indigenous, the traditional practices with Western medicine. I think, again, like we like we said, it's just so unique. And from the anthropological perspective, like it's what we call holism or being holistic. You know, yeah, all totally. these combination with each other. Um, it's just so valuable. It's what makes root healing so unique. Um, and I think as you had mentioned, it, it provides a really special model for other organizations that are interested in doing this type of work to be able to uh, follow and hopefully kind of integrate those pieces into what they want to look like too. So super interesting, really valuable. Um, I have another question here. So along in your journey, I'm sure that there were challenges that you came up against. Can you talk about what some of those challenges were and what you did to overcome them? Uh, probably the biggest is the bureaucracy of the Portuguese government. I'm not trashing you, Portugal. I love you. Uh, but yeah, no, it's, uh, it's been a challenging just in the sense of the visas. Like I actually, uh, one of the 
biggest challenges for me, and it was a big sacrifice that I had to make, was the decision to miss two of my best friend's weddings. Of course, they happened uh, in this time frame where I was in between uh, the process of getting my residence permit and needing it to leave the country. So like I couldn't, if I had left the country, I might not have been allowed back in. So I missed the first one. I think it was in April and I, and, uh, April or May. And I thought that I would definitely have it by the time, you know, I was like one of my best friends. I was actually in the wedding party. And, uh, so was my sister and like, like all these really close people in my life, uh, all getting together. And, uh, yeah, I had to not go because, you know, it wasn't a difficult choice for me to make. I, I'm, I'm committed to this and I, you know, I'll get to see all of them again, but it's, uh, that's the thing when, if you're, if you're really serious about doing this stuff, you're going to have to make like a, quite a few sacrifices, um, especially at the early stages because yeah, it's, it's, that's, a, that's why there's not too many people doing it is, is, is it's really, really challenging. Um, so yeah, that was probably the biggest challenge for me, but just also just trying to get uh, paperwork done in time and things like that. Um, getting the shamans visas and paperwork for him to come visit when he did. And, uh, you know, it's, it's mostly just government bureaucratic stuff, but outside of that, like when it comes to like the guests and the retreat and, uh, doing everything, it's always been, uh, such a beautiful experience. There's no, I mean, the challenges obviously are when someone doesn't want to actually heal or, um, you know, doesn't really want to look at what they need to look at in order to heal. And that's really difficult on our end because we, we just know how close they are to being free. Um, but outside of that, most people, most people get free and they, and they leave happy. So, um, you know, just, just be ready to make, make some personal sacrifices if this is what you're trying to do and don't let anything like that, um, divert you from, from this because the work will, uh, if you love doing this stuff, it'll, it'll reward you and it'll fill you where, where you're lacking. That was a beautiful response to that for sure. Is there any other advice or if there was one piece of advice that you would offer our listeners in trying to find their way along their journey, um, whether it be creating a retreat themselves or just trying to figure out maybe even what they want to do, what piece of advice would you offer them? Uh, trust yourself and I mean, trust yourself, trust yourself, trust yourself. Uh, but also just if you're, if you're thinking about it and you, you, you aren't sure you should continue, you know, tr- you know, go experience the medicine, experience things and then start from there. Um, but yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, like the only, the biggest thing that gets in the way of, of people doing these things is, is not kind of trusting themselves and, you know, like, you know, kind of like the addicts always like looking outwardly, um, and, and those programs for ways to help, like, it's the same thing. Like you, if you can just count on yourself and trust your own personal judgment and your own point of view, that's actually the best thing you can offer the world as well is your own unique perspective. So, uh, I would put that first and make sure that that's right. And keep checking on that and making sure that you're being honest with yourself, real with yourself, and, uh, and then just get out there and get your hands dirty. Just, you know, try things. It's okay to make mistakes. Like there's the only way that you're ever going to improve at anything is through mistakes. Like mistakes are how we learn. So not getting swept away by like mistakes or choosing the wrong path or choosing the wrong thing first. Uh, that's not the right way to look at it. You just know what not to do now. 
So just go on to the next thing and keep trying. But as long as you trust yourself, you'll be fine. That's wonderful advice. Thank you for giving that to our listeners. I think that's something sure. that they can really walk away with that I think is very useful. All right. I think we can um, head into looking into, you know, what you see for the future of the psychedelic field and even your role within it. So what do you think or what would you like to see happen in the next five or 10 years? And what kind of role do you want to have in that? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's yeah, there's a lot happening. I mean, you have the how to change your mind on Netflix now and everybody uh, kind of including your own grandma learning about psychedelics. Um, what do I see in the future? I see a lot more interest and a lot more use because the good thing is it's not like one of those other fads. Psychedelics work, you know, they actually heal people. So, um, and they have a lot of solutions. It's unlike any other medicine actually. So uh, I'm not worried about this being a fad. I think that the more people that use psychedelics, the more people are going to realize how important they are to our society. Uh, and how good good they can be. That being said, I think it's important to protect uh, protect things from this like capitalist machine. And and I keep saying capitalism. It's, I'm not anti-capitalism. It's just it's it is the nature of the beast that that it, it's for profit and all that stuff. Um, and yeah, I, I, one thing that I worry about is the pharmaceutical industry and or um, big business kind of coming in and taking over that process. So I really like decriminalized nature's approach to everything. I think that everybody should have access to plant medicines. And it's actually the Bwiti tradition's belief that Iboga is for everyone. Uh, we believe strongly in that. Um, that being said, we also don't, we need to think about um, sustainability and stuff like that. Um, and one of the things with sustainability, luckily, uh, BOGA is classified as of little and no concern right now. So um, that's fine. It's just that I, I'd like to see for those people using ibogaine in particular, that they work with uh, Boakanga Africanga, the extraction ibogaine that's extracted from that, which is just another ibogaine containing plant that's much more sustainable. Um, but if you're a user or a provider of this medicine, that's also why I think it's really important to keep the Bwiti tradition with it, because anyone who's working from a Bwiti tradition context or uh, training with them or getting their medicine from them, it's already sustainable. You know, the same people that have been caring for the medicine for thousands of years are caring for it. And I think it should stay that way. I don't think Westerners should be telling the Gabonese or the Bwiti how to manage their own sacrament. And that's something that we've been seeing in the aboga space that's upsetting, uh, especially from organizations backed by big business. Um, I see them trying to regulate it and I see them trying to control the import and export of aboga and that scares me. But I also, in a weird way, uh, I know this sounds weird probably to listeners, but I believe in this medicine and its ability to protect itself. Uh, I've seen it time and time again, actually. So if, I, I don't know if you noticed, but aboga is kind of, been under the radar like for a long time it's not like you hear about all the other psychedelics but you don't really hear about a boga uh, i think that's a boga doing that or influencing that per, on a personal level so overarching view i'd love to see as many people have access to a boga as possible within the traditional context and all psychedelics um and i just want to make sure that it stays in that kind of decentralized place 
And I think decentralized place is, is the way that all, it affects all psychedelics. Awesome. That's a really informative response. And I think it brings up a lot of very important things. It brings up context of use and, and <laughs> within, you know, those traditional contexts and frameworks that are super important. Um, and that really connects again to like what you brought up with sustainability. And we're seeing issues with sustainability with other plant medicines, especially peyote in the United yeah. States. Um, and then these questions of like, whose knowledge um supersedes, you know, others knowledge on what sustainability looks like. And again, recognizing the value of these indigenous and traditional communities that know way more about these types of plant medicines than, you know, you know, Western ideas do, especially because they've been working with them for, you know, exceptional amounts of time. Whereas, you know, it's, these are essentially in comparison, very relatively new things in in the Western world. Um, So bringing up such important issues that definitely need to be on the agenda for the next five to 10 years um, and, and have such deep importance um, in making sure not just the sustainability of the plants, but ultimately the sustainability of the entire movement of being able to try and and keep providing treatment options and um, personal growth options for individuals, for everyone. Um, So super important. So glad you brought up all of that. Yeah, of course. Um, Is there anything else that you want to say or offer to our listeners before we wrap things up and we get them your contact information? Life is a gift. Love life. That's it. Just be. Well said. (laughs) Great way to summarize it all, really. Um, And for any of our listeners who are interested in reaching out, connecting with you, asking you questions, um, looking for resources, what's the best way that they can connect with you? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, yeah, I'm totally happy to help anybody that's interested, especially with the BOGA, um, to help get training if they want, or even just to answer any questions that you might have, or, you know, we need different ideas. We don't just need a BOGA providers. We, we, you know, we need other people helping in other ways. Maybe your background's marketing, things like that. There's tons of ways you can be involved and I'm totally happy to help. So the best way is to, is my direct email at root healing. Uh, and that's Genigo, which is G-H-E-N-I-G-H-O at RootHealing.com. Perfect. Thank you for that. And I will make sure that I also include um, your email in the show notes, too, just in case anyone didn't catch it. Um, but I think just to reiterate again, the fact that like there's so many ways to get involved in this. It doesn't have to be, you know, not everyone has to be like a practitioner. Not everyone has yeah. to. You know, there's so many ways to get involved. It doesn't have to be just clinical. It doesn't have to be just a provider. There's so many gradients, so many diversities of um, roles to play within this. And I'm so glad that you bring that up. And I think that our listeners will find that you're a great resource for helping them to figure out what their kind of spot is within all of this. So thank you so much for everything that you gave us. Thank you for sharing your story and your experiences um, and all the resources that you have to offer. And you know, spreading the Buiti tradition, which is just as important along with everything else. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) It's been such a great and informative conversation. I know our listeners will really enjoy this too. Awesome. I hope I was. Uh, And I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Gabby. Uh, Please, people, don't be afraid to email. I, I really would love to help if anybody's interested. Yes. Listeners, reach out to Brian. This has been a 
amazing conversation. Um, and, and I'm sure that he can offer you even more than what we did here. Cause I mean, I could sit here and speak to you for hours on end, picking your brain on all kinds of different things. So, um, definitely a great resource. Thank you so much again. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. I want to direct your attention to the show notes once again, where you can find relevant links from our conversation and ways to contact Ryan. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to connect with like-minded spirits, be sure to jump on over to our Psychedelic Grad community page. The link is in the notes below. Also, when you join our community, you'll get a weekly newsletter filled with psychedelic goodies, including psychedelic studies, field announcements, and job openings. If you'd like to support Psychedelic Grad and the Curious to Serious podcast so we can keep the dream alive, click on the link in the show notes below to donate and buy us a coffee. Finally, if you enjoyed today's podcast, please leave us a five-star review and maybe even a comment so we know we're doing a good job. Thank you again for joining us. I'm your co-host, Gabby. Stay curious, and we look forward to seeing you back here for our next episode of Psychedelic Grad's Curious to Serious podcast. Oh,